Hi, I'm Ant. And I'm Dave. You're listening to Managing in the Middle. A podcast about ways to make work suck less. Let's face it, being a manager is hard work. We'll gather new ideas and fresh perspectives on how to be a better boss. Stick around and hear practical advice on how to manage happier, more productive teams. When you're a shit-hot leader, it's a win for everyone. We're really, really pleased to have you today. And I wanted to see whether you could step us through your journey as a physician in setting up a brand new respiratory team. Yeah, sure. So I started in my job as the head of respiratory. Finally, it was four years ago last Thursday. The hospital I work in had all other specialties, but didn't have respiratory for some reason. So I was initially appointed in another capacity, so in general medicine. After 12 months, we demonstrated sufficient need and so converted our medical unit into an official respiratory team. And then I kind of put together my vision for what I thought were the three key gaps in our service and presented that to our executive team and then kind of just made it a reality. So in four years, I've gone from it being me and another physician to I've now got 38 staff, about to have 42. Um, Wow. Yeah. And we are probably the third biggest respiratory unit in the state now, having not existed four years ago. So it's been rapid growth and a very, very steep learning curve. Tell us a little bit about how you built that team and in terms of forming a brand new team that didn't exist. What are the types of behaviours and meeting cadences and and sort of formalities that you needed to set up to to create a really high-performing team? What I did set up was a regular meeting where we all get together and attendance is compulsory. And we have really clear rules about the behaviours that are appropriate. So our entire team come, right, from me, our nursing, medical, administrative, scientific staff, and I insist on punctuality because I think that if you're late, it shows that you think your time is more important than other people's and everyone's time is equally important. The other thing that we did was set up a really strong quality and safety program. So I'm really clear on what's important to me as a as a head of department. So making sure that we have a relentless commitment to continuous improvement and patient safety is really important to me. And so we have a we have a monthly meeting with our entire board, all of our multidisciplinary team where we just talk about safety concerns we don't talk about operational business we don't talk about who's annoying and what's going on anywhere else it's just about safety so I think I put in place some of the the structures that reinforce the things that I felt were really important and after I dealt with some of my imposter syndrome I practiced significant accountability so I joke that working for me is a nightmare, but my team tell me that's not the case because I'm really clear about what I expect and I don't expect my team to do anything that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. There's accountability. If you don't deliver, there are repercussions and there are consequences. And 
I'm really clear about that and then no one's got an issue. Well, there's no more important time to have those levels of standards than at the moment a respiratory unit during a respiratory pandemic. Can you talk us through a little bit around how you've managed to keep morale going through such a challenging time for your industry and specifically your specialists within your unit? So I'm, I'm really lucky that I have an amazing, amazing team of doctors and nurses and allied health staff who work with me. And so SAFE is something I talk about all the time and often we talk about it for patients, but in a pandemic I really I felt at this huge burden of keeping my staff safe. And so I was really lucky. I work in a hospital that was very proactive and our response to COVID was fantastic. Our executive did a great job. I think I've learnt that over-communicating is the only way to adequately communicate. So I was just incredibly clear with what was happening right from the get-go. And because I built my team myself, the language that I use when I talk about us is all about family. That's, that's how we feel. And one of the things that I think I've struggled most with in the last year is particularly putting our junior doctors in a situation where they were so at risk despite having every form of protection that we knew about that we could offer them. And, you know, I, I had junior doctors become infected. They had to care for their colleagues who became infected and who were really unwell. And that's, you know, that's, that's a devastating thing to have to do. And to have to put them back in that situation day in, day out was um, really difficult. But so we had monthly debriefs with our ethics team and a psychologist around, you know, the moral distress associated with some of the care that we weren't able to provide. And mm. I think it was that open communication that kind of helped to get us through. Yeah, great. And how have the staff responded since? How, how are they feeling now after a very long yeah. So we're pretty excited that we've got our Christmas party on Friday, which is always a pretty boozy event. So that should be fun. We're all just exhausted. And it's really nice now because we don't have a sense of dread going to work now that we've had so many days COVID free. But everyone's just spent. And I think when everyone is so tired and has so little left to give, it's so important to be able to focus on the positives that have happened this year and to also talk about what good things we're going to do in the future. Because even though we have had a, a really difficult time, our unit has made some really positive advances. We've been very lucky to receive over half a million dollars worth of grants to purchase equipment, which will really change the care that we deliver. We're expanding our services. For a team that's still growing, you know, when we compare ourselves to other units, we've still got gaps. That ability to continue to improve despite what we've all been through and to celebrate how, how well we did as a team, like everyone rose to the occasion. and. That's a really lovely thing to be able to, 
to, to share together. Um, I think lockdown brought a lot of families closer together, spending so much time together. In some ways, I think it brought our team together as well, even though we were much further apart. We had to really unify around the goal, otherwise we just weren't going to be able to deliver the care. Was there a lot of selling of the vision involved or was it clear to everyone this had to happen? So I think in our organisation at the time, it was very clear that that actually needed to happen. It was a major gap. Some of the things that I've done subsequent to that have definitely been all about the vision and about what the purpose of healthcare is. The community that my hospital serves is quite socioeconomically disadvantaged. It's rapidly growing. It's very culturally and linguistically diverse. And their health outcomes are worse than pretty much every other part of the state. And so I genuinely believe that it's our, it's our fundamental need to provide healthcare that is at least 50% better than in other more affluent parts of Melbourne and Victoria so that our community can get the same health outcomes. I'm really big about data and measurement and outcomes and objective, objective measures. And so when you can see the before and after and the genuine impact that you've had, it's incredibly rewarding and, you know, no executive is going to say, oh, no, you can't have this money to do this amazing work that you've demonstrated is having a really meaningful impact. I use a lot of data. When people are setting up systems and projects, they think about the steps that need to be taken to deliver but not necessarily how they're going to measure the impact. And that evaluation piece is often what's missing. But if you don't plan that from the start, you're not collecting the right stuff to be able to show how important what you've delivered is. How important is your obvious passion for this vision and the data in binding your team together so tightly and getting them on board with where you're what will you see happening? So I think it's fundamentally why I'm successful. So I'm successful because of two things, I think. I'm really good at seeing people, so I'm really good at recruiting. I've got a team who are really aligned in what they value. So we have very different backgrounds, very, very different backgrounds, but aligned on what we all want to achieve, which is better health outcomes for our community. I think that my commitment to them makes them incredibly committed to me as well, which makes me really lucky. That sounds amazing. One phrase you used earlier that stood out to me was significant accountability. Do you want to expand on that a little bit, how you sell that to your team and how that reflects on how you behave? I think a really simple example, so one of the most important things in hospitals for operational excellence is patient flow. So I work in a hospital with the busiest emergency department in the state, which feeds into a 400-bed hospital. So if you imagine the Royal Melbourne is a 650-bed hospital, so they're going this to this, we're going this to this. So we are always bed constrained and 
that what that means is that patients spend a really long time in the wrong place, which leads to the potential for them to receive the wrong care. So by creating flow, we get more patients to the right place at the right time, which frees up the ambulances to be back in the community, you know, attending to emergencies rather than sitting around waiting in our emergency department. So I've set KPIs for my junior doctors. I get a report at 8.07 every Monday morning from our business intelligence team that tells me whether or not they've met the KPIs. And they're not easy KPIs to meet, but they're, they're realistic if they try. And at 9 o'clock every Monday, they either get coffee brought to them and they get told that they're wonderful and that I'm so grateful for their commitment to improving patient flow and patient safety, or they get asked to explain why they haven't met the KPIs. So and <laughs> there might be a perfectly reasonable explanation. We set up the discharges, but then there were issues with pharmacy or whatever. And if they can explain that, you know, what's happened, no issue. But they never do it two weeks in a row. <laughs> One thing, Catherine, that we talk a lot about during this podcast is feedback in the moment and it sounds as though your mechanism for providing that feedback around whether people are meeting KPIs is quite timely. Do you find that that's, people respond really well to that sort of fairly immediate feedback around their performance? So I do and I also think that tying it to something purposeful like patient safety People have to understand the purpose of their KPIs. They can't just be KPIs for the sake of being KPIs. But when they create flow, they make the patient safe. That's what they're there for. They just, as a junior doctor, you're just not aware that your actions on your ward have implications across the whole organisation. And being able to have that change in perspective, you know, you're like, oh, well, Okay, I can I can do the discharge script the day before. No no problem. If that's if that's all I've got to do, then that's easy. So I think that both timely feedback and also linking KPIs to an outcome that's important to the person, I think that they're two ways that you can get people to actually do what you need them to do. What have been your biggest challenges as a manager and how do you feel you sort of overcome those? So at the start, because I'd never, you know, I kind of went from zero to hero. So I, I'd never really, I'd never led before or I never thought of myself as a leader or really considered that for my future. So I'd never developed any of those skills really. I felt awkward asking people to do the basic functions of their job and I wasn't good at practicing accountability I felt I had a lot of imposter syndrome so um, I've always been quite an anxious person and then I think leading a team who were older than me so I was probably the youngest and still probably the youngest on the team People aren't significantly older than me but have more experience. I really struggled to ask people to 
to do what is essentially just their job. And then I was asked by the organisation to lead our winter strategy, which is an organisation-wide committee, (laughs) which was kind of out of the blue. I freaked because I didn't know how I was going to manage so many people from really different kind of areas. And I had some coaching. Susan, my coach, she completely changed. She changed my life, I would say. She um, helped me apply the standards I held myself to, to the rest of the team. And um, I do a lot of um, mindfulness. I'd always done a lot of mindfulness being an anxious person and having had quite a bit of therapy in the past. (laughs) So I'd always done a fair bit of mindfulness, but I really have practised or tried to practise mindful leadership. So like mindful listening is something I try and do all the time. So genuinely being present and listening to the content without hearing tone so that you don't get triggered because I get triggered Mm. by tone quite a lot so practicing that doing the six second pause so when I start to feel triggered I just do a slow three second breath in three second breath out which kind of resets and then I can talk as you can see when I get nervous I go red and blotchy My body gives me away, which is terrible. But, um, you know, it doesn't even bother me anymore that that happens because I now I've reframed that as people can see that I'm really passionate about what I do. So it used to make me more stressed, which would make me more red. I do a lot of reframing now as well. If I... I seem to have these delusions where if someone says, like if one of our exec texts me and say, oh, hey, can you give me a call, I automatically think I'm in trouble. (laughs) Everybody does. That's the worst thing they can do. And I was like, oh, hey, I was wondering if you could do me a favour. Like it's a nothing thing. But, yeah, I... And I still have to work on that. So I work on reframing all the time. You know, maybe they want to call me to tell me I'm doing a good job or to pass on a compliment from someone else rather than to tell me that I'm in trouble. So those are some of the this key skills that I learned from, from the coaching that I had. And I think that that really helped me overcome some of those initial challenges because I think A lot of it was just in my head. It wasn't real. It was stuff that I was putting on to situations rather than I think in medicine I spend so much time critically evaluating information, critically evaluating what a patient is telling me or their examination findings, and yet all I was doing was overlaying stuff onto the situations that I was in, stuff that wasn't there. So learning to not do that and to be a bit more objective. Tell us a little bit about how you manage burnout and all of those things that come. I I know you're at the end of a very long year, but how are the ways from a leader perspective that you can encourage not only resilience but, you know, people keeping well and, and physically safe as well as mentally? What do I do to encourage people? So I would say that my whole team are burnt out right now. And 
do you know what? That's the result of being the respiratory team in a respiratory pandemic. And it's just it, but it's, you know, it's what we needed to do to keep everyone alive and not to be melodramatic and like, oh, everyone would have died, but actually needed to go to work to care for the sick. I think you get a pass on that one, Catherine. But everyone's taking leave at Christmas and I think it's just talking about it. You know, we we talk about how we feel all the time. Everyone knows I talk about seeing my psychologist. I encourage other people to, to seek help that they need. Sometimes people will just be like, I'll be like, oh, I think you just need to take a couple of days, like just take a long weekend. And even just um, giving people permission to feel not right is is sometimes enough just to help them get through until well hopefully now where we can all have a bit more of a break. So what's next for you in terms of what you're looking to practice and grow as a leader in in the next 12 months if that were to be your question what are you focusing on? So I've just done an executive MBA at Melbourne Business School so I finished that in the middle of the pandemic because as if I didn't have enough going on. Mm. Obviously, I didn't start it knowing that there was going to be a pandemic. So that's been an amazing experience to learn totally new skills from people from really diverse backgrounds. So I've learnt, like learning business is like learning a whole other language. I didn't know what a channel was. I thought a channel was two, seven, nine, and 10 rather than convenience stores or whatever FMCG I know now what all those things B2B B2C you know it's um I hadn't been challenged like that in a really long time and that was something that I really enjoyed so I think I'd really like to use some of those skills so what I feel really passionate about is um what's called value-based healthcare so it's a a healthcare system that focuses really on the outcomes that matter most to patients. And it's um, currently implemented in some places in the States, but not really in Australia, where we have a fee-for-service model where the more care I give a person, the more money the hospital gets, regardless of whether that care is of high quality or is what actually helps or matters to the patients. So I think that we fundamentally need to change the way that health is not only delivered but funded. And so what I want to do in the next 12 months is pilot value-based healthcare in our organisation and try and build some of the, the foundations, I suppose, for how we, can, how we can really change the care that we deliver to genuinely impact those outcomes. It's obviously a little bit of a tricky thing to implement currently because of the way the funding model works. If I set up a system that reduces the amount of care that we (laughs) deliver, the hospital will be worse off financially. So there's competing priorities from the organisation there. But I think if I describe a system where we just deliver more rather than the care that matters, why would you do that? That's just dumb. Like we should obviously deliver the care that matters most to patients. So it's about I need to work on communicating that message 
particularly to the executive and board level and trying to get some traction around how we can change that. And then other things that I want to do, my service isn't quite finished growing, so our big remaining kind of gap is sleep medicine. So our hospital is, despite being 40 kilometres from the CBD, is incredibly um, space-constrained. So finding a space for that and convincing the organisation that that's a real priority, which it absolutely is for patients. They're probably the the two things that I would like to do in the next 12 months. But in January, so every January I do a whiteboard of um, my work goals for the year and the whiteboard's usually pretty full. There were, I think there were 33 things on it this year and some of them are big, some of them are really small, but it makes me feel, I, I guess it gives me a really clear idea of where I'm going over the year and you know I look at it every three months and cross some stuff off and I haven't crossed some stuff off I start to freak out and it motivates me so and then I I always send a picture of it to our chief executive chief operating officer and chief financial officer and say fair warning um, so that they know (laughs) what to expect for the coming 12 months and but I think that's good because they know and then my team always want to come and see what it is that we're going to do for the next 12 months yeah they want to give me a valium and be like no I'm just gonna rub this one off and rub that one off it sets our roadmap for the way my team work that's really effective they they know what we're going to do and and then revisit it in December and we've crossed off two-thirds of the things so some of them are like way out there. So like they're not even stretch goals, they're crazy goals. If we've achieved two-thirds of them, I just think we've smashed it. And I'm like, mm. I think it's fantastic. So yeah, yeah, it's good for them. And you know, different people will help with different things. And so I really love it. It's interesting when your your team obviously trusts you. It seems to be a natural thing you're trustworthy. You're very transparent. It's all out there, and your actions are all about your stated goals. You're consistent in what you say, what you do, all these things. And on top of that, you've obviously shown vulnerability and things like that, which also inspire trust in a team. So I'm guessing those are natural to you. What would be the one leadership trait that you've had to actually learn? So I'm a passionate person. So I don't like being called emotional. I am emotional, but it's because I care so much. And so being able to remove, and I don't mean remove emotion because you it's so important to still feel, mm. but to not be clouded by emotion so that you can't hear what another person is telling you is something that I still really struggle with. And that's something that I've really had to work on. So, and that's why I try and do that mindful listening where I'm just listening to the words and where I do the six-second pause because my team is really personal to me. I've picked every single person who works for me. Like I said, the language we use is all around family. It is personal for me. I've put so many... I've 
spent thousands of hours working on that unit, when people fail to see its value or question the value of aspects of it, I get very defensive and I really struggle. And particularly when I get when I hear about decisions secondhand, I attach emotion to decisions that isn't there. So while the hospital isn't a for-profit business, it still needs to be viable. And so our executive have to make difficult choices. And in my world, because we have worked so hard and delivered so much, we should be protected. But sometimes that's just not how it is and decisions have to be made. And I think as I've grown up, as I've matured as a leader, I'm able to just accept things more. I still question them, but um, I won't have a complete tantrum. Catherine, what's your go-to in terms of your philosophies on leadership and where you sort of get your energy from? Who's been the most influential in that space for you in terms of growing and developing as a leader? So our Chief Operating Officer has been a real inspiration for me. So she was the first person who, so I, like, once I became the head of unit, I just assumed that that was the end of my career progression. So most of the, so the next youngest head of respiratory in Victoria is 18 years older than me. So there's a, there's a big gap between me and him and then everyone is kind of in their mid-60s so I just kind of thought that this was where I would level out and then I remember walking down the corridor and I think someone had said something very inappropriate about me in a professional context and I was really upset and she said don't let it bother you don't let those small people get to you you know you'll run this place one day and I guess I'd never really even thought about that before and then it just, it was a throwaway line. I can I can see the corridor that we were walking down totally changed my perspective of what I could do. And then definitely um, the coaching I had, that really helped. And then I like to read, I don't have a great, I should confess, like, I say, oh, I like to read. I might get to read like two leadership books a year. I just (laughs) (laughs) like I do like to read books around leadership. So The Courage to Be Disliked was a book that really helped me because I think that that was something that I had really struggled with and some of the things discussed there were really helpful. I really like that book Grit by Angela Duckworth. A lot of that really resonated with me. My parents were pretty strict growing up and so I could see that some of the stuff that she was oh, that her parents did to her and that she does to her children really um, resonated with me. And so I really like um, Brené Brown's stuff on vulnerability as well. So I definitely believe that vulnerability breeds trust. In health we don't really like, we don't really do feedback <laughs> We definitely don't do 360s, but um, I really wanted to do it and I really wanted to do it properly. So I picked 20 people who 
I believed would give honest feedback and ask them personally, each individually, to give really honest feedback and that I'd share the results with everyone, like I'd share the report mm. that I got with everyone. And people don't, I know people do that in business, but it's not a thing in health. So doing that was a really amazing experience for me. And I think the feedback I got once I shared it was almost better than the feedback I got in the report. And um, that's something that I'm really, really pleased that I did, even though it was like the most horrific thing I've ever done. I just felt so terrifying. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, yeah. Very brave. Once every three years, I think that's all. I guess in sort of conclusion, what sort of advice would you give new leaders starting out around the most important things that they should cultivate as they sort of begin their journey? So I think being really driven and committed to purpose has really helped me and communicating how the vision of what you want to achieve, whether that be you know, this week, this month, this year, how that vision ties to your purpose can really align your team in what you try to achieve. I'd suggest, I'd say, never ask other people to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. I think people do that a lot and it doesn't breed trust. So Mm. I think that that's something else that's really important something that we haven't talked about but that I sorry I should have mentioned I use storytelling a lot so I use individual patient stories and I I often we have a really strong consumer group in respiratory so I'll often use the individual consumers to tell their story as a way of motivating the team to to change what we're doing I think storytelling is really underutilized as a motivation tool for teams and you should hire people that have the complementary skills to support you so that you don't have to do everything yourself and I definitely don't do everything myself and I don't pretend that I know how to do everything so yeah Mm, it's great advice I'm just still blown away by the passion and it's just done. Okay, I could keep talking all night. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, thank you so much. It's an incredibly inspiring and I think particularly off the back of an incredible 2020 for you and your team. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing all of your nuggets of wisdom. Absolute joy. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you've thought of any burning questions or we've triggered something you'd like to discuss, hit us up on the socials. If you want more information, check the show notes. Everything's in there. Do us a favor. Tell your mates. We can help everyone.